Mike. Welcome back to the podcast. It's it's hard to believe it's been over a year. I think it was episode 108 since we last had you on here to talk hype. So welcome back. <laughs> it's great to be back, Brett. I had a lot of fun on the last one. I feel like uh, we really went through some great stuff. So Yeah, and I think it, it's perfect timing to have you back, right? We went through a little bit of a rebrand with the podcast and our target audience and you know, someone I think you can refresh my memory kind of started as a freelance copywriter before becoming a you know world famous author and agency owner and all that good stuff. So maybe to kick us off, why don't you just share uh, with the audience a little bit about you and uh, and your company, and and we'll 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 dive into it. I was a freelance copywriter, and at one point, I really that was my ambition was to be a freelancer. I had no ambition to own a business. So um, it's funny. I just saw a thing where Stephen King testified at uh, a court case about the, um, the merger of the publishing houses and how he thinks it's damaging authors. And they asked him his profession and he said, Stephen King freelance writer and everyone laughed. Uh, but that's what he is, right? I mean, he's a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. There's an entire entertainment complex based around him, but he's a freelance writer. He gets up in the morning and he writes. And, and so I wanted to be a writer and that took different forms. Um, but all this to say, I needed to make a living and eventually fell into a corporate job. I had tried to do the writer uh, music thing when I was in my early 20s and but money success did not happen and you need to be able to feed yourself with your art. So I had to give it up uh, or chose to, I should say. And I, I got quote unquote serious and I had a corporate job and um, learned a lot in the first three years. But after that, I really was unhappy. And I there were a lot of reasons, but I think part of it was because I wasn't a freelancer. I, I, I uh, hated having to show up and be at a desk. And, and this was how it was then. It's changed a little, but I had to be the kind of boss I had was very old school. And it was the kind of thing that if you worked till 10 p.m. at the office to get a project done and you were in at 9.06, you got yelled at, you know. Um, I didn't like the, the cubicle setting. I didn't like the politics. I didn't like the fake group laughter in meetings. I mean, I, I, I just didn't like it. So I did well and I made more and more money and it was hard to leave. And I was I would still write fiction in the morning. So I read an article in Writer's Digest and it was about it was by Bob Bly, who's one of the most successful freelance copywriters of all time. Uh, and he talked about how you can write white papers and make between three and five thousand dollars a white paper. And my logic at the time was. I know about this really niche uh, field, which is the BPO field, because of where I was working. I actually wrote white papers at work because I basically came up with content marketing for the company without calling it that. I worked for the CMO, so we used white papers. And I said, if I go out and I can write white papers uh, and I can do one a week, um, I can be a writer for a living, a professional writer. And then I can use part of my time to write my artistic fiction kind of stuff. And that's a great life. And um, I built a little side practice and, and got enough clients that I thought it proved that I was good. And I left. And the problem was uh, with my situation, I would have been happy to be a freelance copywriter, except what I didn't understand was that 
it wasn't really possible to do a white paper a week because I needed to get business. And at the time, I wasn't naturally good at that. I, I would write and I would get people to rehire me. But um, there would be times where I'd be writing 31 days straight. That was my record. I, I, I worked 31 days straight, full days, 10 hour, 11, 12 hour days. And then I had no work for a month and a half and I had to just market. So I worked like a dog and I made basically a, a working class income, you know, and I realized I needed to fix that. I needed a system to both systematically generate business and also have a system to be paid all the time, not just when I was writing. And that led to everything else that led to the company that I now run that led to the book that I wrote. Um, and, and, and we can go into that, but I feel like I've been talking for a while, but, but yeah, yeah freelancing no. was always my goal. I, I had no desire to build a company. Well, and I think it's a, it's a common tale, right? What are people like me doing wrong today with marketing that, you know, blog, I got a podcast, but customers aren't always flowing in. <laughs> so like 10 years ago, everyone was blogging. And there was just this idea that you needed a blog. And I think that this idea was propagated by the guys who created HubSpot and wrote the book Inbound Marketing. And it was a great book, but I think people really misinterpreted it. It was this idea that if you create content, people will just come to you in an inbound manner. It will just happen, right? Like it, you don't have to go out and find people. The thing is, no one ever thought about the mechanisms of how is that going to happen. Just writing consistent blog posts three days a week or five days a week, is it like the magical Google fairies just find the blog? I mean, do they know what you're writing? I mean, do they know how it ties to your work? But people do that, right? Um, and I've seen it over and over again. I, I saw it with um, Twitter. I saw it with Facebook ads. I saw it with clubhouse that was the craziest one because everyone jumped on that and then it died in three seconds i saw it with podcasts you know and the thing is all of these are great tools and i think sometimes people really confuse the tools with the stuff what we're trying to do is we're trying to through an understanding of mass psychology of how people predictively predictably make decisions and are persuaded and get excited we're trying to create ways to get attention and get people to see how good you are and and stand out from the rest and get emotional about your stuff and that is a function of that's something that people used to do with a soapbox in the corner of Hyde Park in England. These tools are amplifiers, but I think what a lot of us do is we focus very, very heavily on the tools. Like there's this formula, it's understandable. We, we, we don't like doing that part of it. We got into the business because we like to do graphic design or we like to do consulting or we like to do writing. And so it's really easy to just think if I follow, I read a book, hey, if I consistently post blogs, I'm gonna get business and not have to worry about it. But unfortunately, that gets people in a lot of trouble. It got me in a lot of trouble. I, it, uh, I, I had to have a very uh, pivotal moment and revelation to get out of that. And I'm lucky that I did. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's such a good point. And we do read, and, you know, I get frustrated too with the, the social media folks. They can post, hey, the sky is blue and they get 6,000 likes. I mean, once you get to that level, that's fine. But the, the rest of us are, 
you know, yeah, on exactly. the, the lower end of that, just trying to, we know we should be doing content, right? And but so I, I want to say, I would, I would like to go a little farther. I sure. would like to say, when you say we know we need to do be, be doing content, not really. Sometimes okay. content can be useful. You need to be getting attention from large numbers of people and you need them to get excited enough to buy from you, right? I like it. Okay. So here's an example. One of the methods I used early on that probably made me more money than any other method was go to conferences. And I had a press pass so I could get into conferences. And I wrote about the conferences, but I didn't write about the conferences to attract end buyers. I wrote about them because I had to. What I really was doing was going to the conferences and networking with people who could afford an $8,000 ticket. So I realized that I was very good at networking with solopreneurs at cocktail events. But when they would hear my, my price, they would get sticker shock because they were, they were half broke like I was at the time. So my, my calculus was if I can get in a room and do work that magic that I'm good at, but with people who have enough money or enough budget to do to to pay that and use my content as bait the content wasn't making me money it was that i was schmoozing with the right people and they hired me cuz i was a good talker so before we get into the systematically what we can do and how to think of it i think i would encourage any freelancer to think about how can you stop following recipes and start thinking about how human psychology works and conducting experiments to capitalize on that. And if you're able to actually do what other people aren't doing, that puts you at an advantage. Because by the time everyone is, is blogging, by the time your dentist is blogging, it's probably too late, you know, right. to use that to set right. yourself apart. Yeah. No, I think that that's so true. And I am seeing more and more, maybe the return of, and maybe it's never gone away, is the relationships, right? Building the relationships. And I was listening, I can't remember the, the podcast now, but the, the author was talking about storytelling is great, but it's one-sided usually, right? If you're just telling the story, you're not engaging with, with folks. And so I think it's, this is going to be a relief to a lot of folks listening to the podcast saying, you mean, I don't have to write every day for a month in order to, to grow my business. And no, it's right. How do you get that attention and leverage what you do have? Right. I'm on board. All right. So how do we, how do we do this? <laughs> um, I guess what happened in my case was I was really trying hard when I was trying to start this freelancer business to market myself. And I, I believed in all of these myths about, you know, social media and the internet and these systems. And I'm a good student, right? So I learned a, a little bit of search engine optimization, right? Trying to get Google to drive traffic to your site. Yeah. I mean, even Google Plus, which I thought at the time was going to be a big deal because Google ran it, which was a flop. Um, all of these things. And it really was very ineffective for me. It, it was, I was doing everything according to the rules and it wasn't working and it was very frustrating. And I, I, I'm kind of hard on myself. I know I, I shouldn't be, but I would beat myself up like it was a character flaw. Like, how am I going to be successful if I can't get, if I can't quote unquote market or sell, right? And, um, and I was burning through savings. I had saved up a year's worth of income in preparation for this because I'm a bit of a chicken. 
And, and so I was, I was burning through that. And I was like, you know, the corporate world ruined me. I've become a grown up. And um, it just occurred to me, maybe because I had nothing to lose, that I was being really safe and I was being really corporate and a, a real rule follower. And I think part of that came from being interested in punk music because groups like the Sex Pistols, there was a documentary called Pistol, and it's about, um, not a documentary, a show about the Sex Pistols. And their manager, Malcolm McLaren, his whole thing, he said, boredom is counter-revolutionary. So the idea was to get large numbers of people angry and jacked up, you know, to, 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 as a social experiment. And I was always interested in that stuff. So I said, you know what? I have very little to lose. Like, what if I just think in terms of that, of hyping this thing up in, instead of um, marketing it? And, and I was scared to do it because that takes, you have to be contrarian, right? And, and it wasn't really thought out in the beginning. It was a mindset. So the first thing I did, I, I, I was watching Gary Vaynerchuk, who, again, great business person. Wine Library TV was great. But he was giving all of this advice to young people that, it, that hustle was everything, that if you work around the clock, doing the work by yourself, that's what it takes. And what I was thinking was, you know, very few people who are entrepreneurs don't work hard. I work like a dog and I'm broke you know, I, I'm living, right. on, you know, so like, this is You're stupid hustling. advice. I mean, you know, I hustled like a maniac, but, you know, I, 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 I was really not doing well. Um, and I was doing all the work myself, right? So that I thought that was a bad I, thing to teach people. And I happened to know that he didn't practice what he preaches. He works hard, but he has systems. He has 300 employees, right? So I wrote, I happened to have talked my way into writing a column for Inc., and I wrote an article called Why Gary Vaynerchuk is Flat Out Wrong. And I basically, I was very respectful. I, I wasn't being a jerk to be a jerk, but I, I drew a line in the sand and I said, this hustle thing that he preaches is good for Gary, but it's not good for you. And he, um, you can find the video online. Uh, he responded to me, I, I, which I didn't expect. And I was very scared to send it. If it had been six months earlier, I wouldn't have done it because right. I was, would have been scared to burn bridges, but I had nothing to lose. Um, he saw the article and I was a nobody and he started out very respectful of me. And by the end, it was, it was, it was a little bit fun for me, the punk rock side of me, because it was very, very clear I had gotten under his skin because he forgot himself. <laughs> and I said something about revenue or money and he misinterpreted. He was like, I could stop working any day. I could move to Tahiti, but I love the hustle. And he, he was like sweating and he was like very agitated. And so all his acolytes started blowing up my phone and calling me lazy, which was the funniest part, you know, and like all of these things and you're an idiot and da da da. And he's like, a, I was like, this guy's like a cult leader. I just ruined my career. And um, it turns out that uh, a lot of people felt the way I did. And it was the, really the beginning of my career. I started to build a substantial following. And after that, I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm going to study the marketers who weren't marketers. I took a Malcolm McLaren approach to this. He would have never called himself a marketer, but he was a better marketer than any of these 98% of these search engine optimization data analyst people, right? I mean, he, he had the whole country on fire. He had a top number one hit from a band where they couldn't put the song because it was so offensive, the song title. So I started saying, look, I'm going to start studying those kind of people and start doing experiments that way. And I started thinking like what I called a hype artist, not like a marketer. And I had moral standards. I mean, to me, I didn't want to 
cheat people. I didn't want to lie. And if that's what it took, I wasn't going to do it. And then I wrote a book called The Hype Hand Book, kind of documenting this whole thing. Which I'd highly recommend for folks. If you're enjoying this conversation, definitely pick up the book. It's something I still refer back to. And we're talking a little bit offline that I need to actually revisit some of those things because Jesse Cole was on the podcast a bit ago, and he's the owner of the Savannah Bananas, which are oh, yeah. blowing up now. Yellow yeah. Tux guy, right? And yeah. he's just reimagining baseball, and the purists hate him, right? Because that's not the way you're supposed to do it, but it's working, and it's true to what he wanted to do. And I think that's where the other point I want to go back to you made on, you know, corporate ruins us. It was so right. I was having this conversation the other day that earlier in my career, I was asking all the time, why not? Why can't we do this? Why wouldn't we do open up a bagel shop? Sure. What do I know about bagels? Nothing. But you know, how hard can it be? Why not? And there's just why not me or why not us? But then you get in corporate and then it's just kind of incremental. Everything is just a little bit better or do it a little bit, you know, and definitely more, um, cautious right or yeah you don't take the chances and now i'm trying to get back and rediscovering that the more outward right approach to it i would say that's where you have a real advantage as a freelancer and enjoy it while you're small right because we all make fun of corporations for being conservative but they should be conservative right i mean these are massive organizations so if they Look at some of the blowback. I mean, one, uh, you know, a CEO lays people off improperly and it's a nightmare. And I'm not saying that's a good thing to do, but people get laid off, right? Right. But if you do it in a group Zoom call instead of on one-to-one meetings and that gets broadcast, you know, I don't want to defend this guy because it was very callous. And at the same time, who knows what goes on behind closed doors? He made a decision. You know what I mean? Right, he was right, going right. to have to lay these people off anyway. He did it in a way that where he prized efficiency over empathy. But who knows? Maybe he's super stressed out because of what he had to do. Maybe he's dealing with too many things, right? But you make a mistake in the corporate world, it's a nightmare, right? So people play it very close to the vest. They They workshop things. They talk about it in board meetings. They do the thing that's going to offend the least people. So so it's very tough to do that. People slip through the cracks. You see a lot more of it. They're starting innovation arms at big corporations, which is amazing, right? I mean, they, they start a group that's sort of insulated where they can conduct experiments that are unassociated with the core company. And then when they have a winner, they put it back into the corporation. But as a freelancer, you have the benefit of being able to test things a lot of time uh, quickly. So if you think to yourself, okay, let's be playful with this. You know, let me study what makes people, you know, human beings are more alike than they are different. And we're very social animals, right? People get really fired up in groups, virtual or in person in ways they don't as individuals. So if you can take a little bit of time to study that, and then start conducting experiments that are playful, that are meant to capitalize on that in a way to get yourself some attention, get people excited and do it in an ethical way. You have some freedom there that the big companies don't always have. True. Yeah, no, it's it's a good point. And we don't need as many customers right at this yeah, point in time. Sure. And so I think it's hard for folks to to understand that it's it's okay to 
keep niching down, right? I mean, we're going into a path, but but it's okay. I don't have to be for everybody. I, I documented on uh, the, the podcast journey, right? This is the fourth iteration of it, but each time it's gotten a little bit further and more niched of who I want to work with. And that's where I can take, you know, some more chances with it because I know I don't have to be for everybody. And I think that's hard because we do want to, I think in nature or maybe psychology is we want to please everybody, but reading your articles and the Gary Vanderchuk, and you've had a couple of those that, you know, it's stayed true to you. You weren't right out to offend anybody, but it makes sense. Right. So, I mean, I, I use what I've got and I think in person people say I'm really uh, relatively pleasant. I mean, I, I guess, but in my <laughs> quote unquote art, I've always, I'm not someone who's, who writes lyrical poetry. That's beautiful. I mean, in, in the stories I wrote in the songs I wrote, it's really important for me to get a reaction if, so that people think about the world differently than they ever did. And I think I've carried some of that over. So when I write an article taking down Simon Sinek, but then dissecting what you can learn from him and apply uh, to better effect, I, I really am not doing it. And people have thought this, but to be a troll, someone called me a professional hater. I have it on my Twitter thing now, you know, my bio. But, but I'm not. I mean, if I res- it, it's more that I feel that some of these gurus, especially the ones that don't produce a physical product, which is perfectly fine. I don't produce a physical product. But because of the way they frame their offerings, people accept what they say without question. And that's very lucrative to them. And I sometimes try to burst the balloon and say, why don't you question that? now? I don't do that because I'm trying to be a jerk. I do that because that's who I am. And that's probably why I like punk music instead of the Grateful Dead, right? So I I would look into yourself and figure out what's that thing that comes naturally. And, And the better place to start is what's the thing that you're insecure about and what's your weakness? If, you know, people say manage to your strengths, And that's kind of true, except a lot of people probably have your strengths. I mean, I'm a good writer, but there's a lot of good writers, right? But um, that the fact that I have been at social occasions and just can't help myself but to get into a debate with someone about a difficult issue that I have no business talking about with new people, that's a weakness, you know? And... I've tried to tamper it down. It's hard for me to do. Some people like it. Some people can't stand me as a result, but that's unique, right? There's like a weirdness in that. So you can take that weirdness and say, what's the flip side? How do I turn that into a positive? And that will probably stand out more than the, the reverse, than trying to say, I'm a great writer, hire me. I'm a great designer, hire me. Yeah, different is always better than better, right? Because better is really hard to communicate. And I think that's part of part of the struggle too. Is why are we different? And that it's hard for folks to to think about it. But if you can unlock that or uncover it, or I mean, it's it it is really what the, it's going to separate from the ninety five percent that are just going to market on good, right? So if you can be the yellow tux guy or be a go to battle with Gary Vanderchuk and call him up because what there's a whole universe of people that agree with you, which that, you that found, was it, right? The right? loud that, ones are the ones that are the Gary the Vaniacs. They're the loud ones, right. but the quiet ones are the ones that don't have a king yet. The Vaniacs have their king. 
The other ones are staying in the corner, kind of like the emperor probably doesn't have clothes, but I'm not going to be the first to say it. So if you become the one, if you become, if you're the little boy who says, I think the emperor is naked, you can become the leader. Right. People can rally around you. And, and so um, I think at the core of a lot of what I call hype and what I've really built my career around and what I write about is is drawing lines in the sand, is, is, is being unafraid. Don't be a troll. That's the worst. Don't insult right. people's looks and this and that, the things people do. I mean, I, I see some of this political stuff. They're, they're out there saying that Joe Biden's wife looks like Alice Cooper. Forget about my political beliefs. You don't even need to know what they are. I've seen it on the other side too. That's just trolly. That's ridiculous. What, what does that do? But to say, hey, uh, every, the thing everyone loves about Joe Biden, here's why it's not good. Well, that's valid and that's useful, right? So pick a fight with an idea. But I think in general, being willing to go left, not politically left, but go in the left direction when people go right or go right when people go left is really valuable. And I also want to comment on the thing you said before about the, the niching down. What's so beautiful about, from a business perspective, about the world we live in right now, um, there are so many problems with social media and the internet. But the good thing is that you can be famous in a corner of the universe and no one needs to know you outside that. So like Gary Vaynerchuk in our world is, is Elvis, right? I mean, he's so well known. My mother doesn't know who he is. I mean, when I was a kid, I knew who Harrison Ford was. My mom knew who Harrison Ford was, right? Right, right. That's not how it is. So, I mean, actually, that's why I, I named my company Microfame Media, because my whole thing is you need to be micro-famous. You don't even want to try to become famous. That's too hard. And that gives you a sense of focus that you wouldn't have otherwise, right? Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's definitely the takeaways. Um Easier said than done, but the difference is just keep yeah. focusing on it. And I, I like to, um, you teased it and we haven't got into it yet. You're working on a new approach and I, I don't want to, I want to do it justice. So why don't you share <laughs> what you're, uh, I don't want testing is the right word or what you're rolling out. Um, I'm super curious. Well, well thanks. I mean, well, so, so um, as I mentioned, even now I, I own, you know, a company that, as I said, that helps businesses um, with what I call hype campaigns, right? So it's a strange sort of marketing company, but I don't like to use the word marketing because of everything we talked about, what that means. Right. So even though I do all of that, I'm probably known more for that. At, at, at the heart, I really do think of myself as a writer. As I said, that's why I got into all of this. So I wrote this book, The Hype Handbook, which Basically, I tried to codify, I tried to distill, are there universal principles that these hype artists, these non-marketer marketers, these outsiders, these outliers who are so good at attracting attention and driving emotion, are there principles that if you take the specifics of the content away, if you take the specifics of the morality away, are there principles that tie it all together? And, and I became very, very convinced that there are. I, I really um, am beyond convinced that I boiled it into 12 principles. Maybe you could chop it up into 10 or 13. But there are these umbrella sort of mass psychology principles that these kinds of people inherently get. I also, because I was such a bad salesperson and marketer in the beginning and became good at it through studying this, 
it, it, the exciting thing to me was a lot of people have it inherently, but you can learn it. You can kind of under understand this stuff. So all of this to say the second strategy in the um, hype handbook was build a secret society. And I use that term sort of playfully. What I meant by that was every hype artist, as I call them, um, they do this thing where they make it look like all of their success is grassroots. Like they built this million person following person by person by person. But what they do behind the the scenes is they spend a lot of time and energy cultivating not just a network, but like a scene, like a circle of people around them who they, they, they hook each other up, right? That they constantly are pulling the strings to blow things up behind the surface. Um, and I use that term playfully because it had that subversive tone. But when I started thinking about it, I'm thinking about what, what should I do for my next book? I'm at that place. I'm thinking about, and everything I do, I don't do theoretically. I come up with an idea and then I test it. So I got interested in real secret societies. I said, well, why do these things exist? Why are they so attractive in the public imagination? But more importantly, why have so many powerful people been involved in them? Whether it's Skull and Bones at Yale or the Freemasons in their heyday, uh, what, what is so attractive? What is this all about? And what most people would like to believe is that there are these sinister things going on when you close the door. It's like this world domination thing where they're hooking each other up. It turns out that the point of the secrecy of these groups is the secrecy. So what's the point? Because a normal networking group, you show up, you sit around a table, you share what kind of leads you need, you pass out business cards, and it's a chore. You do it because you're supposed to do it, but it's not fun. It's not enticing. It's it's just this thing. And as a result, the, the, the best people aren't there. And I don't mean best morally, but the people you really want to get to know who can affect your career. By building up that sense of like, I need to find out what's going on there. And you have to work through levels and there's theatricality and pageantry. It attracts people just need to know. They'll pay the money to get in. They identify and it becomes a tribe. So I started thinking everyone starts these mastermind groups and these networking groups and, you know, whatever. You, you show up, you sit in a boring room. Now it's always on Zoom. You go around. What do you need help with? What kind of lead sources are you looking for? It's typically people like you, you know. But I thought to myself, what if I modeled as an experiment something on one of these real secret societies. And I, I could build one, see if there's appeal, and if, it'll help my business and other people. And if it really does well, I could document the process with the names being protected for, you know, for the innocent. And, um, you know, maybe write, write a book. So I created a, a group called uh, the Ludic Circle. So use a little Latin that helps, right? You don't, right? You course, know, add some so, mystery to it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, Evan, and again, it goes ties back to the the different and interesting. I think that's the key because everybody's building um, communities, which is important. But I think the ones that are really stand out. I love the idea of the secretive one. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right because even when you told me the name, like, oh, what is he working on? <laughs> right, and so, so you have a great point. I want to interrupt you and chime in so I don't forget. This is such a great point. So exactly what you're describing. So people will say, "I'm starting a community." That's a buzzword. 
they're doing it because they think they should. So they start it, they do it as a Facebook group. They do it, you know, and, and it, it's always kind of a variation on the same. They invite people with this mass sort of mailer. They invite people to the Facebook group. They go around and talk business. And it's a thing that you're supposed to do, right? And a lot of people think of it as a way to scale your business, et cetera, et cetera. You pay a fee. All that's fine. But dissect why you're doing it. Do you really have a strategy? Are you thinking about human psychology? Or are you doing it because you're, not to be harsh, but because you're following the herd? Don't create a community unless there's a reason to do it. Yeah, it's. It, I was listening to, uh, do you know the name Molly Bloom? Yeah, I, I, I do, yeah. She ran or is famous for running... Um, underground poker games like high stakes celebrities you know billionaires titans of industry all these types of thing and when she started it it was invite only right and all the communication was one-on-one no group texts that were going out and what she did to really focus on the experience was she moved it when it first started it was like in the basement of a restaurant somewhere but then ultimately moved to like the four seasons so it was high end the experience and people were wanted to keep coming back, and so it it just it just reinforces everything you're talking. It definitely was secretive because that's an amazing <laughs> idea. So um, now I want to uh, add to the other side of that, right? So yeah. if this is what I don't want listeners to do, if you're a, a freelancer who decided you needed to scale your business and you're doing a forty five dollar online course, that's what you're working on right now. And you say, I'm going to do this secret society thing. This published author and business owner told me to do it. I'm going to follow what he did. You need, if you're selling a course for $45, you need tons of traffic. So if you're using secret society, only focus on people who have massive followings, who have an incentive to do a joint venture with you, or don't do it at all and try something else. The tactics only work when they're grounded in a sense of, of, of understanding your goals and then understanding what the rational psychology, the, the, the rational strategy of what's going to get you there. No, it, it's right. Tied back to the business, right? I mean, right. I think if, you know, similar to what, what I've done is with the consulting, I figure out there's things I didn't like to do. There's things I do like right. to do. And whatever that model is, is where you need to figure out, but to work backwards, right? So if you right. know you've yes. got this goal, then you're going to have to find, I do think we over, you're right, if we could build that tribe of 100 highly engaged people, there's so much more value in that than, you know, a 2,000 that probably don't even watch your feed, right? Depending <laughs> on what you sell. I mean, True. for a, you know, a lot of us are business to business. And in that case, it's good. But if you, again... You know, they're, they're, so I look at um, retail companies and restaurants, and I think they're better business people than me. I say this all the time, not tongue in cheek, because to me, if you open a pizza store and then turn it into a chain of 10, like Anthony's Coal Fire Pizza, which is all over the country. I went to high school in South Florida, and that I remember the first one. It was an outgrowth of a restaurant called Runway 84. And it was a pizza place. And he turned that thing into this massive business. If you can sell a slice for 450, 
and make a multi-million dollar business. (laughs) You're a genius that I can't even begin to approximate. So again, if you're a freelancer who makes jewelry and and you're not just doing it for a side gig, but you're really ambitious, getting 50 people, unless all of those people have audiences of a million and are willing to talk about it on TV, right? Right may not be your strategy. You may, may need to really figure out how to drive a million eyeballs a day to your website. And that's okay. But to your point, you got to start with the end. Yes. Yeah. Have a plan, man. <laughs> the plan can change, but yeah. it's what is, because I think a lot, I started looking at some of the stats of the, the freelancers and you know, only a handful, I think less than 10% actually make uh, 100K a year. And again, nothing wrong with that if that's what your goal is and you only want to work three days. But I find a lot of them are working more hours for less pay than what they were doing corporate. So how do we flip that switch? And it's got to start what, what's, what's your goal, right? And I never worked better. harder than when I was a freelancer. I have lots of big clients and I made $40,000 a year. Now that's okay, except for the fact that my average spend was between three and $5,000. I wrote copy for LinkedIn, Citrix, Rico, all of these places. I worked 31 days. I worked like an animal and I couldn't support, I, I supported my family, but we each had $100 of discretionary income every two weeks. It wasn't until I did a combination of figuring out this hype stuff about not focusing on following, you know, the herd, but focusing on mass psychology paired with systems. I figured out a way to get people to buy in the beginning. I don't do this anymore. Content packages with a monthly retainer. Right, right, right. There was no way I worked so hard and I was dying out there. And that's hard. Yeah. That stinks. I mean, it's one thing if you're being lazy, but these people right. work like you, you guys work like dogs. I did. Yeah, I, I work less work. hard now, by far. Yeah, because you you figured out the, the the process, and you're right. The systems is a whole other episode we could do yeah. on that, which we may have you come back and talk <laughs> about because I do think once you figure out how right, how are you different? Then what is the systems to right. to to free up the time? So right. if. Uh, if folks want to find you, Mike, where's the, what's the best place? Obviously, we'll put them in the show notes and everything and link to the book, all that good stuff. But yeah. what's your preferred medium? <laughs> well, th- thanks for asking. That's that's awesome. So um, I'm going to try. There are so many places, but I, I know as, a, as an old school marketer, you shouldn't have a lot of calls to action. So um, I'll say that if you want to find out about me and do it relatively cheaply and steal my stuff, just go to Amazon or your bookshop if they have it and type in the hype handbook and buy the book and read it. I give away all my secrets there. Um, (laughs) If you do want to find out more about the company, whether it's just to learn more about the company or to, you know, if you want to talk about doing something together, uh, you know, having us hype you guys up or work with you to hype things up, it's a microfamemedia.com. So that's M-I-C-R-O-F-A-M-E, media.com. 